Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Posler. This week, the president heads to the Middle East in hopes of doing something about gas prices. But that's not the only item on his agenda. Don't regret anything that I said. What happened to Khashoggi was outrageous. Another January 6th hearing is in the books, and one of the Republicans on the committee teases what could be some damning revelations. Let me say one more time. We will take any efforts to influence witness testimony very seriously. Plus, the FDA tries to make it easier for women to get contraception and foreign propaganda in American media. All of that coming up this hour, but we begin with President Biden continuing his first trip to the Middle East as president. And, well, a lot of controversy coming out of it. He shared a fist bump with Saudi Arabia's de facto leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Apparently also brought up the issue of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist who was killed by the Saudi government several years ago. And then he also talked about some polls and some of the president's claims weren't really true. Joining me now to talk about all of this is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Let's start with that trip to the Middle East. What is President Biden, first off, trying to do with this visit to Saudi Arabia? The part of this that, that's hard to understand is that he wasn't really there to visit Saudi Arabia. They were hosting a number of nations to talk about regional issues in the Middle East. Just happened to be hosted in Saudi Arabia, so that's where he had to show up. The Saudi crown prince knows that, boy, he can get a lot of mileage out of uh, having a picture with Joe Biden, the guy that called him a pariah just a year and a half ago. So he, Joe Biden gets out of the limo, walks down the, the red carpet or the purple carpet or whatever they had out there. And you see the crown prince smiling and Joe Biden's going, God, what am I going to have to do here? So he gives him a little fist bump, certainly not enthusiastic, and then they walk on. But he wasn't there to meet the crown prince. He was there to meet all the other nations, uh, about two dozen other nations there. And uh, at a news conference that happened very late in the day in Saudi Arabia, he got up and defended meeting him, saying, look, I'm not, I wasn't here to go see the crown prince, but since I was, I the first thing he did was bring up the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, saying, you know, there's credible evidence that you ordered the killing. I believe you did. Uh, the crown prince looked the president in the eye, according to President Biden, said, no, I didn't. Uh, I had nothing to do with the murder or ordering it, but uh, I've punished the people who did. And Biden said, well, I still believe you did it. And that was that, I suppose. I'm not quite sure what else the president could have done other than punch him in the nose. And then uh, they went on to other topics. And there were other topics that were beneficial to the United States, beneficial to other Middle East countries including uh, opening airways between Israel and Saudi Arabia for the first time that you can now fly in a jet, commercial jet from Israel to Saudi Arabia, which is a giant step when you consider the Saudi nation wanted to wipe Israel off the face of the earth in the last century. So you have that uh, when it came down to oil and gas prices, that was a whole other story. We didn't get a whole lot of information from the president other than he said he discussed it. And he hopes that their discussions bear fruit in gas prices in the next few weeks. Is the president talking with the leaders of OPEC on this trip as well? Some of them were there, uh, and that was a big part of the discussion. They were talking about regional security, the war in Yemen. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with containing Iran, making sure that Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon and that these other countries don't help them. So there was a lot that's in the president and the United States' interest on the plate, and the president seemed fairly pleased with what he's walking away with. 
And there was also controversy even before this trip began over that meeting with Mohammed bin Salman uh, over the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Was the president going to shake his hand? What was he going to do? And then there was this fist bump. And we've seen controversy over presidential fist bumps in the past in, in the American media. Absolutely. But, you know, we have to understand the reason that this weighs so heavily on Joe Biden is that he straddles this, this very fine line between moderate and very progressive Democrats. And those very progressive Democrats in Congress were just lashing out at him with blistering criticism. Even Adam Schiff, who normally is completely on team Biden, came out today and said, well, this just goes to prove how powerful these oil-rich oligarchs are and how dependent the U.S. is on them. And uh, his last part of the tweet was, a fist bump speaks a thousand words. It's not good when you're losing your own party's support for something that may have been avoidable. I'm not sure it was. If the president wanted to meet with those other countries and Saudi Arabia is hosting it, either he shows up or he doesn't. I don't know what else he could have done here. But he did say that he confronted uh, MBS face to face, said, I believe he did this. MBS said, no, I didn't. But we've seen this. We've seen this playbook before. We saw this with Donald Trump going to meet with Vladimir Putin and standing up publicly and not saying he confronted Putin. But he said, you know, I asked him and I had no reason to believe he did interfere with the United with the U.S. elections, which was ludicrous. And then he got so much blowback from that. that the President Trump at the time said, oh, I misspoke. I meant to say I could see no reason that he didn't do it, which seems ridiculous. But, you know, <laughs> look, it's really hard for these presidents to meet with leaders who are credibly accused of human rights violations and worse. Uh, we saw Trump do this with uh, Kim Jong-un. We've seen other presidents do it with Chinese leaders and others who are less savory. And it's very it's a very difficult position to be in other than we've got to do business with these countries because it's vital to the U.S. economy and in many cases to U.S. security. And you mentioned that the president is losing support from within his own party over some of the things that have gone on on this trip. That kind of brings me to my next question. We're seeing some polling out there, and it, it seems that the president is losing support from liberals, even though he claims he isn't. Uh, yeah, this is weird. There was a New York Times-Siena college poll that came out last week. It's a pretty searing indictment of any chance that Joe Biden has for getting reelected. It says 64, 64 percent of Democrats, we're not talking Republicans or independents, Democrats, a vast majority, more than a, a majority of, of Democrats are saying they would rather have someone else run for office in 2024. 30 percent of them say his age is a big factor. 30 percent say they just think he's not doing a good job. Unfortunately, Joe Biden and any president in a tough economy or any tough situation tends to get all the blame, even though they may not be responsible for it. We saw it with Jimmy Carter. We saw it with George H.W. Bush that hit a bad pocket of recession uh, in his last months in office and couldn't pull out of that to win re-election to a second term. So you see this often. Uh, with presidents, even though, you know, may have nothing to do with their policies. It just has to do with the ups and downs of the economic cycle. And we're coming out of an economic cycle that's unprecedented. Two years of COVID, two years of a pandemic where most of the economy was shut down. So what is the president's reaction to all of this? Well, uh, our Ben Gittleson, our reporter, off-air reporter at the White House, uh, asked the president point blank this week, said, 
Uh, Mr. President, what do you say about the 64% of Democrats who say you shouldn't run for office again? And he laughed it off. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I see the polls. It says 94% of Democrats say they'd vote for me again. I have not seen this poll that the president's referring to, and we have yet to get a straight answer as to what he is referring to. Uh, there was a poll that showed if there was another head-to-head matchup between Biden and uh, Donald Trump, that Biden would win by not by a large margin. I think it was 44 to 41 percent. And the stunning part is that Donald Trump still gets 41 percent of the vote, despite all the revelations we've seen over the last month or so in the January 6th hearings. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll take a closer look at the most recent January 6th hearing and get a preview of some shocking evidence that may be coming out in the next week. After our last hearing, President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation. A witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Another riveting hearing from the January 6th committee. And we had some interesting revelations at the end of it. But before we get to that, what did we learn this week with this latest public hearing? Joining me now is Philip Bump. He's national correspondent for the Washington Post. And uh, I'll put that simple question right to you. What did we learn this time around? I think we learned a couple of things. One of the things we learned is the extent of the tension within the White House uh, in the middle of December 2020, shortly after all the states had certified their electors to be sent to the Electoral College. There was this massive six-hour debate that went throughout the White House between Donald Trump, uh, his attorneys, and a number of outside advisors who sort of made their way in, including folks like Sidney Powell, uh, that that then kicked off. That was that came only hours before Donald Trump's now infamous uh, be there on January 6th. It will be wild mm-hmm. tweet that has been cited in a number of the lawsuits uh, and uh, indictments against people who were at cap at the Capitol on January 6th as having been a, a trigger for them coming to to be in that place. Uh, and I think probably most importantly, what we learned is that Donald Trump all along planned to send people to the Capitol. Uh, that's important, uh, both because he knew on that morning, according to the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, that the people had arms, that they were armed, they had some sort of weapons. Uh, but also it's important because he had been uh, warned, again, according to Hutchinson, that doing so would be seen or could be seen legally as his potentially inciting a riot. So he knew, and there had been conversations uh, that were trying to wave him off of sending people to the Capitol that morning, but he went ahead and did it anyway. And a lot of that came from the testimony of Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Cipollone had been someone that the committee had been trying to get in touch with for uh, quite some time to sit down with an interview. Uh, he agreed to do so after Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, testimony. People remember that it was uh, uh, earlier in this month. She had been a senior advisor to Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff. Cipollone sat down with the committee after that and uh, provided several hours, I believe, I believe eight hours of testimony to them answering their questions, which is then obviously helped stir the, the committee's uh, findings. And so what did he tell the committee? Because, I mean, he was in there, he was trying to advise against a lot of what President Trump wanted to do. So we don't yet know the full scope of what it told. They, they've played some isolated excerpts from their interviews with him uh, during the last hearing. It's expected, and it's one of the things that uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney said is that we're going to hear more about Cipollone's testimony in the upcoming hearing, uh, currently scheduled to be the final hearing for the committee. Uh, so we don't know at the broad extent of what he said, uh, but we have heard public reports that he did not actually contradict anything that was said by Hutchinson or other uh, witnesses. Uh, so uh, to 
we, we know what he said based on what was actually played during the last hearing, uh, but that was fairly limited in scope, and we're going to hear a lot more in this coming week. The other thing we, we learned from that hearing was this idea of a, a tweet that was written but then deleted before right. it was ever sent. What, what was going on there? So it's interesting. There's a couple of interesting things about that, including just this, this fairly odd process that the White House appears to have had for sending out tweets from Donald Trump. But this was a tweet in which Donald Trump had planned to say that there would be a march to the Capitol after uh, his speech at the Ellipse on January 6th. Uh, that was then not sent, which suggests that for some reason, uh, the decision was made not to send it. Was that because the lawyers had said, hey, man, you can't send people to the Capitol, which is what Cassidy Hutchinson said the lawyers had said? Uh, was it because of some other reason that they you know, had, had a change of logistics? We know that there was. We've known this for a long time. We know there was an internal debate over whether or not to direct people to the Capitol after the speech at the Ellipse. And we know there was internal tension within the groups that were planning these various events. Uh, but that and other uh, new evidence that was presented during this most recent hearing, including uh, one of the event organizers saying, hey, look, Trump is going to do this to keep it on the down low, essentially. Uh, we know that Donald Trump all along had planned to direct people to the Capitol, which obviously was what his lawyers did, uh, warned against. And a lot of people ended up going to the Capitol, and, and we heard the testimony of, of one of those people that uh, breached the Capitol security. That's right. So Stephen Ayers, who's from Northeast Ohio, uh, was someone who sort of got caught up in the moment. Uh, you know, obviously, he, he had agency. He made the choice to be there, and he made the choice to go into the Capitol. But he sort of described how it was that he came to be there. He believed Donald Trump's false claims about the election having been stolen. Uh, he heard Donald Trump say that people should go to the Capitol, uh, which obviously he said uh, multiple times during his actual speech at the Ellipse that morning. And he said that that was the point at which he and others around him decided, OK, let's go. And they started marching the Capitol. He ended up breaching the Capitol, getting arrested and seeing his life fall apart as a result. His testimony was, yeah, we were doing it this at the behest of Donald Trump. That's exactly right. He was he 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 served for the committee the role of explaining how someone could get caught up in what Donald Trump was saying and doing. Uh, he was, you know, we, we've heard in all of these various hearings about the ways in which Donald Trump, you know, what he did, what actions he took, so on and so forth. And this was sort of a concrete presentation of this is what it looked like to people on the ground. These were the people that made the decisions based on what Trump was saying to go and violate the law and try and interrupt the peaceful transfer of power. It was to, to some extent sort of a culmination of the committee's work from the standpoint that it finally made concrete all the things they've been saying about what Donald Trump did and the dangers opposed. This was a manifestation of that actual danger in the form of this gentleman, Stephen Ayers. And and so what did we we glean from that? I mean, what is the committee now trying to do? Are they going to refer charges to the Justice Department as a result? Because they seem to be laying out this very criminal case against the former president. The committee has, I think, a, a few goals, uh, some of which are explicitly stated, some of them are, are sort of implicit. They have, obviously, as a goal, explaining what happened, understanding what happened uh, on January 6th, what allowed it to happen, and ways in which it could be in the future. That has a sort of an abstract way of looking at it as well, which is how do you prevent someone like Donald Trump from trying to usurp a presidential election in the way that Donald Trump did? How do you prevent that broadly, not just in terms of what happened at the Capitol, but just the, you know, the, the multi-week campaign to try and get electors to flip and all these various things that Donald Trump is uh, known to have done. But I think also they are trying to make a case, and, and I don't even know if they would say this explicitly, though they might, I think they're trying to make a case to the American public that, look, if Donald Trump runs again in 2024, 
this is the risk he poses to the, the Republic. This is, you know, the, this is someone who can't be trusted to wield presidential power again because of what he tried to do last time. I think they're trying to make that case again, not explicitly, uh, but I think it is certainly something that they hope people will come away with. But that's not something Congress can do. Congress can't file charges. No, that's true. Congress can't file charges. And I think that there's some debate over whether or not uh, the January 6th committee actually thinks that it should re- make a criminal referral to the Justice Department. They don't want it to be seen. If the Justice Department decides there is sufficient evidence to actually charge Donald Trump and then that it's worth the political fallout of actually filing charges, I, I don't know the January 6th committee wants it to be seen as their work that has done that because that'll just, you know, add this veneer of uh, uh, politics to it, which I think they probably would want to avoid. They can make a criminal referral to the Justice Department, but that doesn't mean anything. The Justice Department can just ignore it. So it really is ultimately in the Justice Department's hands. And then at the very end of the hearing, Liz Cheney, the vice chair of this committee, announced something that was rather shocking. It appeared that Donald Trump may have tampered with witnesses. What's going on there? Yeah, so it's it's fairly vague. It was, you know, Liz Cheney, she she made a similar uh, comment at the end of the hearing in which Cassidy Hutchinson gave evidence. Uh, but she basically insinuated that after the Cassidy Hutchinson hearing, Donald Trump had tried to reach out to someone who had worked in the White House. Uh, and the implication was, and later reporting suggested, this is not someone that was close to Donald Trump that, had, you know, that necessarily had spoken with him uh, at any Great length. And so it was unexpected that he would get a call uh, or, the, or he or she might have gotten a call from the, from the former president. And therefore that, you know, maybe Donald Trump, his, his intent was to potentially try and influence any testimony this person might have been offering to the committee. Uh, we don't know. We don't know what Donald Trump intended. We don't know what the, you know, what, what, who this person was or what role they play, but it was something that alarmed the committee enough that they actually referred to the Justice Department to take a look at whether or not witnesses are being interfered with. This is something, obviously, that we've seen before from President Trump. You know, part of the, the investigation by Special Counsel Robert Mueller, a large chunk of his final report dealt with the ways in which Donald Trump had tried to obstruct his own uh, investigation. So this is this is not a new pattern of behavior, should that be what occurred. How serious of a crime is witness tampering? Well, I mean, it's it sort of depends on scale. I mean, it's certainly something that can result in prison time. I think for a former president of the United States, it, it's sort of <laughs> it's so anomalous that it's sort of hard to say how big how big of a deal it is. But it's 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 a very big deal, especially when, you know, as the former president of the United States, you're tasked with preserving and defending the Constitution. And that means you're paying respect to the to, to the legislative branch, which is conducting this investigation. It is it is if this is what was going on there and if this is something that could be proven, it's it's a pretty big deal. And finally, so what are we expecting in, in this next hearing coming up this next week? So we're expecting some more information uh, about um, what Pat Cipollone had spoken with the uh, committee about. Uh, this is also intended to be potentially something of a sort of a wrap up uh, that's looking at, at all the various strands. We haven't heard a lot about uh, the extremist groups that were involved. We heard a little bit in this most recent hearing, so we probably expect some of that as well. Uh, but, you know, they have been putting together, as you mentioned earlier, this step-by-step case uh, about what occurred on that day uh, and what occurred in the weeks leading up to it. And I think we can expect this to be sort of the final culmination. They've been, you know, fairly explicitly laying this out as sort of a, a series to watch, if you will, in, in television terms. And so this is this is it. This is the season finale. So we'll see. All right, Philip Bump with the Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Absolutely. We have to take another quick break, but coming up, we'll take a closer look at one of the witnesses being sought by the committee and his continued acts of defiance when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Steve Bannon, the alt-right former advisor to ex-President Trump, has been a key witness whom the January 6th committee wants to testify. 
He has refused a subpoena, and jury selection in his contempt trial is to begin in the next few days. Our Lisa Jaffe got the latest from ABC's M. Wynn. And what are prosecutors saying about Steve Bannon's sudden willingness to testify? Because that's the whole reason behind his trial, that he wouldn't testify about what he knew before and during and after the attack on the Capitol. Yeah, it's certainly a sudden reversal because now Bannon says he's willing to testify. But not only that, that he expressed in a letter that he's preferring to testify at a public hearing. So certainly a sudden reversal. They say that circumstances have now changed. But prosecutors are suggesting that Bannon's efforts to offer this testimony is no more than a stunt just to try to make him look a little bit more sympathetic to the jury that he's set to face next week on criminal contempt charges. Charges, um, Because remember, he's facing a couple of criminal charges um, because he had defied this congressional subpoena since October. And so certainly there are two counts of contempt of Congress that could face at least one year uh, in prison for each of those charges. That's up to two years plus at least a hundred or about a hundred thousand dollars in fines per Uh, per charge. So that's another $200,000 in fines. So right now, they believe that this is all kind of a show, a last-ditch effort to actually um, make it appear as if he's trying to be a part of the January 6th House Select Committee's uh, ask for, for this testimony. But certainly, it's not looking very good for him. Trump gave the green light saying that he agreed to waive executive privilege. But if he if Bannon wasn't the chief strategist at the time, what's that even mean or do? Exactly. And so that's a big point in which the prosecution is trying to make is that at one point he did work for the White House, but he was let go in 2017. And then he became a private citizen, but he was still consulting the then president. So in reality, the prosecutor says there is no way, and this also includes the January 6th House Select Committee, that any executive privilege would work for Bannon. And that's why he is facing criminal charges for defying a congressional subpoena. That's why the January 6th committee is trying to get him to testify. And the fact that he does have this sudden reversal, we're hearing from Representative Zoe Lofgren, who says, yeah, they can expect to hear from Bannon. They have a lot of questions for him, but they're going to have to ask for this testimony behind closed doors first, like the other hundreds of witnesses that came before him. Now, something very interesting that came out just today is that the current attorney who's actively advising for the former president, his name is Justin Clark. Apparently, he also spoke with the FBI about two weeks ago, directly contradicting Bannon's defense. He says that actually, that at no point did the former president invoke executive privilege. So there's a lot of holes in his defense. And that's certainly going to be on 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 the spotlight when it comes to next week's trial for criminal contempt charges. Former President Trump is, is reportedly very upset that he's not getting his view out there before the committee, even though several members of his party and administration have testified. What is different about Steve Bannon that he would want him to testify? Well, a few things. So, yes, reports do show that the former president has has grown frustrated seeing this testimony uh, before the January 6th House Select Committee, where his strongest defenders have not taken that hot seat. We heard a lot from different witnesses, including the uh, former White House uh, chief of staff's aide, which gave very bombshell testimony against the former president. And so now he's getting frustrated that his biggest defenders and allies, closest allies, such as someone like Bannon, hasn't taken that hot seat. And so when we take a look at Bannon's 
history, there's a few things that the committee certainly wants to hear from. They insist, the panel insists, that Bannon knew about what would happen on January 6th. Because if you remember back, there was a podcast on January 5th, the day right before the riot at the Capitol, that he said, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. And he goes on to say uh, something along the words of, um, it'll be different than anything that we had ever seen before. And so it seems as if, or at least the committee is insisting, that Bannon knew more about what could happen and that he was at that time advising the former president about uh, the election of 2020, that he had reportedly urged the former president to to focus on the January 6th certification of election results. And so certainly they're going to be asking many questions about this and trying to figure out what was happening in the former president's mind during all these conversations. And the January 6th House Select Committee is set to hold another hearing tomorrow. What is the focus of this one? So a few things, Elisa. On one hand, we know that just last Friday, for about eight hours, the panel heard from Pat Cipollone. He's the former Trump White House counsel, who at one point, one of the other witnesses said that Cipollone had um, said to her, if the former president, then President Trump, went to the Capitol the day of the riot, quote, we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable. So certainly the panel had had asked him about this. Um, The panel had said he did not refute any of the previous testimonies. And so we can expect to hear some excerpts from Cipollone's testimony. But really the focus here will be on far-right extremist groups and how they played a role on January 6th. We heard from, uh, again, Representative Lofgren, who said that when it comes to groups like Oath Keepers or Proud Boys, those who have been charged with seditious conspiracy, that this will be the connection that on Tuesday's hearing, they'll try to be connecting the dots between those groups and those in government circles, she says, who were trying to overturn the election. What will be the surprise, do you do you suspect, when it comes to this? Because we've heard far-right extremist groups have been involved in this. I think the idea here is to make sure they get a witness who can really tie the two groups together, can decide uh, and really allow the panel to to see and allow, I guess, the American people to see this tie between government circles, including those in the White House, for instance, uh, with those plans for January 6th. They're really trying to make it a lot closer to the former president than they ever could have in the in the past. The other one thing that could be bombshell uh, testimony is that we understand the panel had provided uh, uh, Cipollone with many questions and that he had given some insight on the subject in which the former president wanted to invoke martial law to seize voting machines in Georgia. And Lofgren said that she couldn't share too much about this testimony, but that he did provide a lot of insight when it came to the possibility of invoking martial law into the idea of overturning illegally the election results. And so that's the kind of aim here that we could hear more from for tomorrow. Steve Bannon is facing up to two years in prison. Is that expected to change because of his testimony? Um, The idea here is that with the letter from the former president, he says, uh, if I can read here, he says, therefore, if you reach an agreement on a time and place of your testimony, I will waive executive privilege for you. It's not clear yet if testifying before the January 6th House Select Committee will somehow change those charges of criminal contempt 
um, before the jury that he's expected to face next week. But we know that as of today, Bannon actually did have a hearing. He wasn't at the hearing, but an attorney was there for him who said that his hands were tied. He said that under he was under the impression that executive privilege would allow him immunity from the subpoenas from the January 6th House Select Committee. But overall, from the hearing today, we're learning that it was just a major blow to Bannon's defense because overall there was some sort of evidence they tried to provide to this uh, this hearing that they couldn't provide physically. And so pieces of this defense from Bannon is falling apart. So it's not clear yet if this actual testimony will help if he would actually testify, because that's not clear as well. But we know that he is welcomed by the panel. And so we'll have to see what happens after that. ABC's M. Wynn joining us from Washington. Thank you, M. Thanks so much. And that's our Elisa Jaffe. Still to come, Russian and Chinese propaganda in American media when the Northwest Politicast continues. After this, welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Now, here on Northwest News Radio, or any radio and TV station in the country for that matter, we are required to tell you when programming has been paid for by a sponsor. The Federal Communications Commission, though, wanted to go beyond a simple declaration in order to expose Russian and Chinese propaganda. But a federal appeals court blocked that move in its tracks. Rachel Weiner is covering for the Washington Post and spoke with our Taylor Van Sice. Rachel, what did the FCC tell broadcasters to do last year to try and root out propaganda? So basically they said it's not enough to just ask the people you're dealing with, the sponsors, who they work for, where they come from. You have to specifically ask, are they a foreign government agent? And is anyone producing the show a foreign government agent? And even if they say no, the FCC was saying you have to check with the Department of Justice, which has a database of registered foreign agents, and with the FCC's list of known foreign government media to make sure that that's accurate, because they had seen reports of particularly Chinese and Russian state media using intermediaries with kind of innocuous, obscure names in the U.S. to get their propaganda on the air without disclosure. Uh, Not to give away any radio trade secrets, Rachel, but uh, most folks in radio were were not foreign policy experts, if anything. Um, What was the argument in favor of having, you know, DJs and sales departments acting as a propaganda screener? There There must be better people suited for this. I mean, I think the argument was basically that, you know, there is no one else, right? That the, however small a radio station is, it's, it's sort of the line between who's, who goes on the air and who listens to it. But, of course, the argument that won the day with the court was that, in fact, these, you know, you can't, unless Congress passes a new law saying so, you can't put these, that burden on broadcasters. They are not the ones required, basically, to figure out if someone is a government agent or not. And public airwaves, they're in such limited supply, which is why it's such a big deal when a a city has uh, a station sold to another company. There's only so much space on the radio band. How many outlets were bothering to carry Russian or Chinese propaganda? Russian, right now, only a handful, especially after the war in Ukraine began, the National Association of Broadcasters made a pretty unusual call saying, listen, you know, you can do this, but we ask that you consider not carrying Russian propaganda right now. Chinese, again, you know, because it's somewhat unclear because there are various intermediaries, but there are a handful of stations around the country. Often, you know, it's, it's small places that don't have a lot of money and someone comes in and says, we'll pay you a lot of money to air 
our radio station and they say, well, you know, this will support the other things we want to do, so why not? That's right. Well, yeah, and we're not rolling in dough like maybe folks were in the 80s or 70s or before uh, in, in many broadcast areas around the country. You can read much more about this online at WashingtonPost.com from Rachel Weiner. Rachel, thank you. And that's Taylor Van Sice. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, how the FDA is responding to the fall of Roe v. Wade when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, the FDA is moving to make contraception more widely available, especially to women in states that now have outlawed abortion. Elisa Jaffe got the latest from ABC's Derek Dennis. Talk about timing, Derek. Tell us about this over-the-counter birth control pill and where things stand with it. Yeah, it's called Opil. It's a, a birth control pill that's been on the market since 1973. But this application from a, a Paris-based drug company is a first of its kind. Uh, a birth control pill marketed to women that will be sold over the counter, meaning it'd be on the drugstore shelf next to the cough medicine and the allergy meds. Uh uh, the uh, pharmaceutical company's CEO called it groundbreaking, uh, a real game changer. And it comes at a time, uh, as you know, when, you know, the Supreme Court has struck down uh, the abortion rights bill uh, law, Roe versus Wade. And so uh, having uh, the potential for a birth control pill to be over the counter will be a historic first in the country. Yeah, having one without a prescription, that's so different. And is this coincidence or was this planned, this timing? Well, the timing is certainly a coincidence uh, coming just weeks after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but it's not that rare. There are about 100 countries around the world that provide uh, oral contraceptives uh, over the counter. The U.S. is uh, sort of behind when it comes to this, and there have been uh, several organizations, the American Medical Organization, Association, the American Academy of Family Physicians that have called on uh, the FDA to approve an over-the-counter contraceptive for women. And so now the FDA has an application before it. They have to consider it, uh, go over the safety and the uh, side effects that uh, could come with it, and uh, an approval could come sometime next year. What are we hearing about side effects? Not many, because the drug's already been on the market since 1973. So it would be the typical side effects that you'd have uh, with a run-of-the-mill birth control pill. I mean, some women report uh, nausea, some say weight gain, but nothing overtly uh, detrimental to to a woman's health, something that they just have to watch and manage uh, with their doctor. But again, this pill would be without a doctor's prescription. It would be over-the-counter. Would it be covered by health insurance? It would be considered just like any other birth control pill. The only difference is it would be, you know, on the shelf and not have to get a prescription and go to the pharmacy and get them to fill it. This would be right there available at your your local drugstore. So, yes, it would be covered just like any other pill once it's approved by the FDA. What are some of the barriers that women face when it comes to having to getting birth control prescriptions? It's an interesting question, and I didn't know this at all, but there are millions of women who report having difficulty getting a prescription for birth control, whether, you know, they don't have uh, health insurance uh, that would cover it or they don't meet uh, certain criteria in terms of their own health. And so having to sort of get rid of that hurdle, uh, be able to go to a pharmacy and get a birth control pill off the shelf, it would be a real game changer and something that women haven't experienced before in this country. Yeah, a lot of people say language barriers also 
impact oh. that. What are we hearing in terms of from the FDA when this application m- might get either the green light or or a no? Yeah, they're going to do their due diligence about it. I mean, consider this. This drug has been on the market uh, since 1973. You had to have a prescription to get it before. The FDA has a new application now for it to be marketed over the counter. So the FDA is going to take another look at it as if it were just first, you know, in their hands in front of them. So they're going to look at the safety, the efficacy, the side effects, all of it, and then get their advisors to weigh in and then go uh, for a full vote uh, by the FDA board. So that process takes about a year. So they're saying sometime next year it would be approved. Are there critics? And if so, what are they saying? Well, the critics are those who don't believe in birth control at all. I mean, you know uh, that there are religious components to to birth control in this country and around the world. And so a lot of those critics fall along those lines who don't believe uh, in, in birth control. They think it's wrong for women to take birth control, that kind of thing. But overwhelmingly, women in this country want the freedom to, you know, have over their own bodies and their own reproductive rights. And so with the striking down of Roe v. Wade, the abortion rights law, having an over-the-counter birth control pill would be something that would be widely considered by women to be a real plus for them in their reproductive rights. ABC's Derek Dennis. And that's Elisa Jaffe. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as North West News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.